I just completely recreated all those characters. I didn't want to use anyone's, like, I didn't even draw them how they looked in real life or use any real names. The dialogue's all real, but I wasn't going to risk. I don't personally believe in anonymity on that stuff, but it's not, that's my decision, not other people's. So I didn't want to fuck with that. I was just like, I'll respect it for other people. What does that mean to not believe in anonymity? Uh, the principle of anonymity, like, I mean, I don't, I'll just say right off the bat, I don't go to AA anymore and I don't subscribe to a lot of what it offers, but I, I, it did work great at the time and I took a lot from it that I actually still use today in my real life. It's got some really good stuff, but it's got a lot of archaic rules. And then anonymity one was like from way back when they were, when it was first created and they were like, don't tell your boss and don't tell your, you know, don't tell anybody because then you might be judged. And it, it just kind of was never reexamined. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to tell everybody because this is what I'm going through and it's fine. And like, and then there's the other part of it, which is just like AA as a program doesn't want anybody being like a figurehead or a public face of it because people fail and they, you know, might, it might look, look bad on the program. Uh, but the, I, like, who gives a shit? And I should say that I've, I've not been through this program or anything similar. I you know, obviously have a lot of friends who have and have discussed it to a certain extent. And this isn't based on anything, but my thought was always that anonymity was more about the other people in the group and more about, you know, not exposing them. Because, you know, if you, if you want to, obviously, this isn't something you should be ashamed about. If you want to re- remain anonymous in a meeting, like you should have the ability to do that. Oh, yeah. And everyone respects that. People aren't running around outing people, like other people. But within the program, it's more of like about yourself. This was all a long time ago now, but it's that thing of you go through it, you, you get through it, and then you write a book about it. And then you sort of like have to accept that like at a certain point for five or six months, I'm going to have to be answering all these questions around AIA with, again, with like a bunch of strangers who I've sort of like chosen to like offer a certain portion of my life up to. The book isn't about AA, actually. AA plays like a pretty small role in my opinion. It doesn't, it doesn't, right? I mean, like, it's not in a lot of scenes, but, and and, and this is interesting to me because this is the takeaway that I've gotten from a lot of people is that effectively you get, you know, two things out of it. Being able to sort of pick and choose the things that do work for you. The way you discuss the anonymity, I've heard a lot of people talk about the higher power part of that. And even though it's an abstraction, like, you know, people get a little bit uncomfortable. It's also that thing they tell you before you go to college, which is, oh, yeah, this is actually just kind of a big social thing. And it's more about actually, like, you know, meeting the people and the connections that you make are, for a lot of people, more important and last longer in your life than any individual piece of information that you learned. Yeah. And that's what I was hoping sort of the takeaway would be because that was the biggest part for me was like learning how to, you know, have friendships and relationships that were, uh, you know, like mutually beneficial and letting and like intimate um, as opposed to just like hiding away all day. Like that was the biggest takeaway for me was just like learning how to be a person in the world with other people. (laughs) I read Kate Beaton's book last year and I don't know Kate really at all. You know, I met her a few times in New York and I didn't know, I didn't know any of the stuff, any of the stuff that like happened in her life before she became a cartoonist. It's different with you because, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time, not like super well, but certainly we knew each other in the period this book was happening. And it's just, it's always, it's always kind of a surreal experience to, 
suddenly like get this peek into somebody's life and like realize all of the things that they were going through when you knew them. Cause yeah. not every relationship you have in that life, you're afforded that opportunity. Yeah. That is kind of like, um, I feel, I feel like a lot of people are going to kind of have that not reaction, but like I had a lot of people in my life at that time, all the people, the Island girls, like they're all in there all the, and, but then you, you don't ever really tell everybody, like, this is what my actual daily life looks like. And I'll be interested to see how they feel about it. I mean, the Pizza Island girls, though, like, they've already read the book, and I ran a lot of pages past them as I was making them, because they're in it. So, I think, though, no surprises there. <laughs> Again, because they are and they aren't. Sarah and Lisa are in there a bit, kind of toward the end. It's interesting how, you know, obviously all of you, all of you are, like, pretty close, and, and you're part of this team, but how... Even those instances when you're when you're really like dealing with some real shit, where people who you consider close almost can be are like can be almost be bit players in that story. Yeah, Sarah's not a bit player in it, but some of the other people are. She's in it quite a bit, but I'm better friends with all those girls now than I was when we were all living like within blocks of each other just by like virtue of going through the more time together and like telling each other about actual life experiences as opposed to just sitting in a room and working together. I'm like finally at a point in my life. And I, I, and I think this is a case with a lot of people where I finally really had to get to a breaking point to realize that, Oh yeah. A million people can tell you, Oh, you shouldn't go through this alone. But like, I don't know in my case. And I think to a certain extent, yours is probably similar. Like, People can tell you things a million times and you won't believe it until you actually hit that breaking point and get to a point where it's like actually necessary to go out and and talk to people about something and seek help. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm a, I saw, because I met so many people during those like recovery years, people who can take advice and apply it and do it immediately. And then there's people like me and it seems like you, like people will tell me something a thousand times, but until I'm ready or till something gets just terrible enough to make me. And even then I still, (laughs) but I have to do things. I can't just listen to someone like in recovery. A lot of people will be like, here's, you know, I I got sober and then I relapsed and here's the story. So you shouldn't do the same thing. And then a lot of people won't. They'll be like, okay, I heard that person's experience. So I won't repeat that. But I'm like, I think that, but then I have to do, like, I just have to go through the experience before I learn from it. I cannot learn from other people's experiences, which is a very stupid way to move through life. (laughs) You're obviously an intelligent person, but it's it's one thing to know something logically, and it's another thing to actually, like, believe it. Yeah, and I don't believe it until I've experienced it. Like, I have to go through it on all levels to really believe it. And I think we want to think that we're different. We watch people do stupid stuff and we watch people struggle with things. And we want to think that for whatever reason, like, I don't know, that we're, that we're stronger or that we won't make the same mistakes that they do. Yeah. Or yeah, we'll learn from them. I would love to be different, but part of making this book made me realize that like, oh, that's just who I am. And now I can maybe be more aware of that. Especially now that I'm like older and I'm a mom and like, I don't, there's less room to make these kind of mistakes now so but uh yeah going through the last 10 years and making that book i was like 
there's just so many people were telling me all these things and then I just wasn't doing them. And then I was just doing the same stupid shit over and over. And I'm trying, I'm hoping that like, I'm hoping that readers of the book get annoyed with my character for doing that because I'm annoyed with myself for doing that. Like, and I, and I was hoping it like went through where you're just like, Oh my God, like this is, this is so dumb. Like why is this person doing this over and over? Because I felt like that. <laughs> it's just like the character is no longer likable at a certain point. Like she kind of pushes the boundaries of how forgiving a reader should be. I hope you felt like that actually going through in real time, or you felt like that revisiting it several years later. Uh, both real time. I definitely like sort of saw that behavior, but I was still stuck in it. So I couldn't really see it. But then going back and like, drawing everything and writing everything made me just so in real time it wasn't like the irritation it was more just like depression that I couldn't figure these things out and change in retrospect I'm just irritated I'm like look I wasted time all these people were telling me what to do and I wasn't doing it uh, because I was just being like a stubborn I don't even know so it's it's more irritation in retrospect I swear I'm not gonna harp on the AA thing the entire time but Obviously, like one of the foundational things is that, you know, accept the things that I, I can't change bit. Is that, I mean, is, is there a truth to that or was there a truth to that to you to sort of realize that there were certain parts of you or certain parts of your personality that like, I don't know, maybe ultimately you couldn't change, but you could perhaps work on the other things? Yeah, I don't, that wasn't like a revelation to me because I was kind of raised thinking that my grandmother got sober and I, she used to say phrases to me all the time when I was a kid and I didn't realize what they were until I was an adult, like where they came from. But that was one of them. And so that one was like, I've always just been like, okay, I can't, this is fine. This is who I am. And I didn't like beat myself up about it. But, um, I don't know. I understand, I guess to to some people that that's like a shock that they took to learn how to accept that. But I don't know that one just, I kind of grew up with it and internalized it early on. I think it's especially tough because there's an extent to which it can sort of feel self-defeating, right? I mean, there are things that I think that we tell ourselves that we can't change, but when in fact, like we can and probably should change them. Yeah, that's one of the, the, there's a lot of phrases in AA that kind of like, they're like brain worms and they get stuck in your head. And I think exactly what you said, they they, they can end up being self-defeating. Because if you're like, well, I can't change this, so why would I even bother? Why not just lean into my worst qualities if that's who I am? And you did some of that. <laughs> there's, some, there's definitely some of that in this book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think people can change. And one thing I learned about going through recovery, and then now I have a different life. I'm not the same person who I was when I went through all that stuff. And that was just me like learning. That was like my coping mechanism with my life. And I had learned new coping mechanisms and those are still applicable to my everyday life, like things that I go through now. But I, I see with myself and a lot of other people, like people do have an amazing capacity for change. And I don't know. I don't think it's like AA is like a one fits all. And I don't, that's why I don't abide by the, the thing I, I think many sizes and many different people, many different programs and many different ways to get through it. You were talking a little bit about how part of writing this book was realizing these sorts of things about yourself. Were they, 
were they different things than the sorts of things that you realized in, in the previous two books, which, you know, obviously like are deeply personal books and do hit on a lot of the same themes. Yeah. All my previous work was done like while it was happening. Drinking at the movies was done just like every, like I had no, there was no thought to that book. There was no hindsight. Uh, I made it as it was happening and you can, that's kind of what's nice about it is it's pretty just like, whatever, this is just what's happening. But there was no growth and no hindsight at all to that. Like, I just, it just is what it is. And I was like in my twenties and it, you know, I wasn't even bothering trying to figure myself out or figure anything out in that book. And then, yeah, this one was made like 10 years after it happened. So it's not like I, I, I learned it was like all the learning happened within that 10 years. And then I was able to sort of consolidate it and, and put it down. But yeah, it's the only book I made with um, the gift of hindsight. Do you ever sort of step back and think about what drinking at the movies, Julia would have thought about impossible people, Julia? Yeah. I probably would not have ever read that book in the first place. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, it's like it is and isn't hard to remember who I was at that point, but I definitely think I would not have been ready to read a book like Impossible People. It just wouldn't have appealed to me. I was only reading stuff that was appealing to me at the time and where I was in my life. I would have thought it was cheesy for sure. I think that's just a part of like growing in general is, I don't know, so I'm going to get into a little bit of therapy talk because this is the thing that I've been going through over the past couple of years. In cognitive behavioral therapy, they call it core beliefs. Are, are you familiar with that concept? So it's like, it's like effectively these things that you hold, like you, you, you've held on to, but maybe haven't really ever, ever examined in a meaningful way. And I'm almost just kind of taken for granted. I wonder if that plays a role here. And I wonder if like having had the opportunity to look at something like this while you were in kind of the darker places of the struggles, whether this would have felt, yeah, either cheesy or whether it had felt like a failure or admitting that you had failed to have gone through this entire process. I don't think it would have been like a failure because I have no problem with failing. I did, I did, I've done it like all the time on and off, but I do think, yeah, like we're saying, part – the cheesiness is an interesting thing. I was like, I was just talking, to again, the Pizza Island Girls about like – so now I'm making comics about parenthood, and it is sometimes so cheesy. And I don't know, like, where that line is anymore of, like, unforgivable cheesiness or cheesiness that is just really relatable and acceptable. And then should there even be a line? Like, does it matter? Who cares if something's cheesy or not? And I think like, I'm like, oh, I don't care. But then I'll read something that another, like parenthood just lends itself to very cheesy things. And I'll read a couple of other things. And I'm like, oh, that's like, it's too far. Like, it's so cheesy that I can't, like, it just makes me cringe inside. And then I have to like, yeah, sit back and examine that sort of core belief. Like what makes something so cheesy that I can't sit with it? And what does that mean about me? Like, why am I so uncomfortable with it? And it's like, then there's, is there cheesy where it's uncomfortable because I identify with it and it's so, or so intimate or sort of like a private moment that is embarrassing to admit. And why is it embarrassing to admit? Or is it just cheesy? Cause it's not good. Like, I don't know where that line is anymore. Well, I don't think it's a private moment because that you've never had an issue with that. 
No, but some of the, in the parenting ones, some of the private moments, like the private moments in Impossible People to me aren't cheesy. They're just kind of like, they can be cringy, but they're not cheesy. Are you able to kind of articulate what the difference is there? I guess it's like when something is cheesy and sweet, that's kind of like when I'm like, ooh, I don't know. Or if it's like cheesy and cringy, but with parenting, sometimes it's just, there's these moments that are so sweet and like, I've never experienced stuff like that. So I'll make a comic about it and then I'll reread it and I'm like, is that too much? Like, is it too, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. It's definitely a new realm of comic making that I, I'm in now. It's very different from all my old stuff. So I'm trying to navigate that landscape with old beliefs. I think the line is that it's that thing of that cliche of like you have kids and all of a sudden, like you want to show everybody pictures of your kids, but 99% of people don't give a shit. Right. I mean, you know, obviously there are people in your life who do want to see your kids and there are family members who do too, but it's your, it's your job, you know, and it's the job of like comedians or writers or anybody else who does this stuff for a living to really find, to distill the things in a way that it, that's hopefully transcends the personal into the universal. Yeah. And to avoid just like a bunch of content that is like, look at this picture of my kid. Like you want to find the one or two pictures that everybody does want to see, <laughs> but really like you're just drowning pictures and you think they're all great because you love your kid and you think they're all fantastic. Like it's, so you're, it's trying to like weed out what works and what doesn't. But then because you're a parent, you have blinders on and you think that everything your kid says is just so funny. Um, thankfully, uh, my spouse is good at reading some of them and being like, you know what, maybe that one's just for us. And I'm like, okay, you're right. Which is his nice way. Uh, that's not that funny. I feel like you get along with people who can be blunt. And, and I appreciate because I'm that way too. And when I was in the early stages of kind of talking to therapists, I was like, I just need somebody who's just going to be like, almost cold and removed in this process. And I, it's just, I actually, and this does tie into the book in really in a nice way, you know, you have, um, your sponsor kind of fits that perfectly. Yeah, she was tough. I had a couple, I didn't put this in the book, but I had other sponsors before her. And I, I don't, when I need help, I don't want someone like holding my hand and baby talking me through it. I need somebody to just like slap me in the face and shove me out into the world. And like, cause I just, I, same thing. Like I don't respond to soft language that's delivered in a way that's comforting. I need someone to just be like, this is how it is. And this is what's going to happen. And it's up to you now. Like, otherwise I just kind of, I'll just, when I have therapists like that, I'll just kind of like the soft therapist, I'll walk all over them and just like, I don't respect them in a weird way. I don't know. And I'm just like, well, I'm just going to talk about something else. <laughs> so maybe it's like an authority thing. Knowing what I know about you and your family, both like having read your stuff, but having talked to you about it too, it seems like it would be a difficult family to survive in if you needed coddling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, family, my family does not coddle at all. Yeah. And if that's the nurturing uh, you needed, you would have to get emancipated and leave the country. <laughs> I love them, but they are just not a people. <laughs> it comes across really well in this book, and I think you do a good job of it because it, it is a hard thing to to get down on paper, and certainly to get down for strangers is that line of 
especially your brothers of people who will like completely fuck with you mercilessly, but also when you really need it, they're there for you. Yeah. Like teasing is the love language with my family, but yeah, when it comes down to it, like they're always, they're always there and we've gone through some shit in the past few years that I haven't made comics about. And that's really been put to the test, like to a degree that most families never have to experience. But I'm happy to say that everyone's okay. And like, it's reshaped the entire family. But I think in the end, also, we had to learn that like the teasing can go too far and be sort of a way to avoid really talking about what's going on. But then when something horrific happens and you can't avoid talking about stuff anymore, you can't really use that defense. So that's been an interesting thing to watch, like break down in the family and like shape up as something different. I'm sorry to hear about that. And like, especially in the last few years, it's just been, I don't know. I don't know anybody who hasn't come out of this fundamentally changed in one way or another. I know I'm probably reading too much into it, but like, I almost got the sense that you were saying, I haven't put this into comics yet. Half of it's my story. Like the having a kid during family trauma is my story, but the other is my brother's story is very complicated. And I don't know, you know, how much he wants to put out there. Um, but yeah, for, so to ha- to go through that as a family, just like really reshapes, um, yeah, like old behaviors and old ways of communicating. And you just can't can, like carry on as things always were once you're facing something like that. That line that you're describing of your story versus somebody else's story, obviously, you know, it's a a very thoughtful line and it's something that you've clearly considered. Is that, is that a line that's always been there for you or is that the kind of thing, not in this specific instance, but just generally when it comes to deciding like what does and doesn't make it into the comic, is that something, has has that always been a guiding force for you? Yeah. I've always believed that my work is secondary to the people in my life. Like I'm not gonna, like, I know some memoirists are like, you know, there's, there's no rules, you know, I'm going to put, I put it all out there and that's my job. Um, and God bless them. I read some really good books that I know ripped families apart. Well, so there are certain people in comics that you probably shouldn't date for that reason. <laughs> um, I might be one of them. And I don't feel that way. I've always wanted, um, I like with family and friends, like I always run stuff past them first. I always ask. Um, I mean, not like every single comic, like I know by now what's okay and what's not, but if I think it might cross a boundary, I will always ask them first. And I have definitely pulled stuff. I pulled stuff from impossible people that after running it by my family, that wasn't even about like my brothers, but it was about my dad. And they were like, you know what? I don't think we need this to be public information. And I pulled it because they were right. Like it doesn't, it didn't add to or take away from the story. You know, no one's like, well, I think we're missing some information about her father on these pages. Like it just was really unnecessary. So yeah, I, it's just not, I make comics to entertain. I'm not trying to like rip a veil away from like a crazy family drama, even though I could, if, if I wanted to go that route, but I'm just not interested. And I'm just trying to like, tell a funny story and hope people relate. And it doesn't have to be any bigger than that. There are definitely a lot of funny moments in here, but 
But I mean, but but it does feel like more than that, and it must have felt like more than that when he sat down and decided to to tackle the topic. That it wasn't just you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I've read the Fart Party comics, and 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 there's, and there's a lot of ways that something like this is fundamentally different. Oh well, yeah, I mean, Fart Party is not. <laughs> I almost said it's exactly what it sounds like, but obviously, it's not exactly what it sounds like. But those are just you know, four panel funny stuff, and. Then- yeah, and this book has like six pages about considering suicide. Like it's intentionally, I've grown up and I'm deciding to tell a bigger story than just like my life as a 23 year old running around San Francisco because it became a career. You can't be a 23 year old forever for for better or for worse. I mean, I still do make those kinds of comics. Like my stick figure stuff is very similar to Art Party, but the content, like if I was still making that I would hope that someone would be like, Hey, you, you, you need to grow up. You're 40. <laughs> I've changed some stuff. What's the line there in terms of, of, of the sick figure comics? Like as we're having this conversation, the, uh, the, the 40, the New Yorker 40 story went up pretty recent recently. And I like, not only is that stick figure, but you very much draw attention to the fact that it is stick figure because you're like, you're like trying to explain something. I think like uh, an outfit that you have that's similar to another lady's and you have to mention okay. that like, no. I'm not giving you enough of a picture right now to really show you how these outfits are different or similar. I, so the reason I'm doing stick figure stuff, especially for the New Yorkers, I just don't have time anymore. Like, I used to work on comics, you know, 16 hours a day, but now I'm a mom and a wife and like I've got a family to tend to and my kid's not in daycare every single day. Uh, So I just don't have the time. But also, I don't, I don't know if it's a good thing or not. Like I don't know. I know some people like the stick figure stuff more than the fully drawn stuff but even when I look at it I, I read it much more flippantly I'm like eh, it's a stick figure one um, and I honestly don't know if I should be doing the stick figure stuff or not <laughs> I'm very conflicted about it it is a way to I guess remove yourself from from being from, from that cheesy thing we were talking about before or from taking it too seriously and that it's like all right well this this is this is a gag like th- this is this is a funny bit right here I'm not trying to like dump soup, something super deep on your head right now. Yeah. And the New Yorker stuff is mostly a gag, but then I had one that was all about um, fear and parenting and like how the fear can consume you. And I feel like that was more serious and I should have drawn it out, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if it matters or not. I don't know to the general public if they're reading it any differently than a fully drawn comic. I just don't know if art matters anymore to the general public. I don't know. I guess from the standpoint too of just like, you know, your I mean your stuff has never been hyper realistic. Yeah, that's, that's true. It's always been cartoony. For some people, like certainly not people that read a lot of comics, but for somebody who is like casually engaging with the New Yorker, it might be like a, a distinction without a difference. Yeah, so I'm saying it doesn't maybe it just doesn't matter. I don't know. Um but mostly yeah. That's just that's also giving it too much uh thought it's really just because of time i can't pump out you know three pages for the new yorker every month while i'm also working on a book and raising a kid like i just don't have time (laughs) if it was fully drawn are you are you already working on another book yeah i'm working on one yeah about having a kid i was reading the interview that you did with meg for 
for PW because I think it's the only thing that's really gone gone live so far about the new book. But you mentioned um, you mentioned basically throwing out two hundred pages of this book at one point in the process. Yeah, I had drawn about that many pages at, while it was happening, like in around like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. And they were just really bad. Um, but I, I drew a lot from those pages. And like they're, a lot of them are in the book. They're just re- reworked. So it's more of a cohesive narrative of, as opposed to what they were um, at the time. But yeah, that was a lot of work. I just kind of, well, and actually I was talking to, um, you know, Paul Constant. The, uh, yeah, so I was talking to him. He did a he's he did um that like long format comics journal interview and we were like walking and talking on the phone and we're talking about work that didn't get turned into anything and i remembered in the middle of my sentence that i had spent years making comics like these short piece comics about my childhood and then i finished it like two years doing that and i put them all in a folder on my computer and forgot about them until i was talking to paul and that's like, that's insane. And now I don't know <laughs> what to do about that. And I, I was trying to have this interview and like, I just am realizing that I lost like two years. It just completely derailed the conversation. Yeah. And I was just dumbfounded. I mean, I was standing like in someone's front yard and I was just like, oh my God. Like, not only is that all that work, just nothing, like I haven't shown it to anyone, but also like, how do I not remember two years worth of I mean, I was working on other stuff at the same time, too, but, like, that's just so weird. So, yeah, if that... A lot of- <laughs> With slightly more remove, you know, from actually having that conversation in real time, have you figured out at all what happened there? No. <laughs> I wish I had better- Was this in your drinking phase? No, it was during um, like early recovery. And I feel like there was a lot going on uh, in my brain at that point, not in my life, because clearly I had all day to make comics. And I think I just churned out so much work during that time because I was like living alone and I could just work on comics all day that a lot of it just I forgot about. So just like an abundance and I'm afraid to look at it. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's there. It's there on an external hard drive somewhere in my storage. It's sort of like sunk cost fallacy, but it's still valuable, right? I mean, even if it never, like, like, like you said, I mean, the 200 pages that you drew for this book, they probably sucked, but, but they were valuable. Yeah. Cause they informed the pages that actually did go into the book. So I'm sure I'll dig those out someday and they will be of some value. But I think the, the weird the weird part of the whole story is that I just forgot. That's just so weird. But it was you sort of dealing with like point in your life that you haven't really dwelled into that much in, in comics. So I don't know, maybe ultimately it was good that you both did it, but also that you didn't immediately show it to other people. Yeah. I, I'm like, like same with the 200 pages. I'm so glad I didn't show that to anybody. Like, at least I had the wherewithal at the time to be like, I'm just going to do these and not put them online. Because um, this was kind of back when everything went online and everyone still had websites that mattered. Um, so I'm glad I sat on those because they are, they, oof, they were not good. 
I'm sure that you get this all, all the time, and I've asked this all the time, but there's this probably somewhat overstated idea of art making artists catharsis. And, and that's usually like discussed in the context of the thing that actually came out, you know, of like, oh, is this, was this basically therapy for you? Or did you use this to process what you're going through? But in a very real way, you were doing that with this, with the work that you were basically spending all day doing because it was really kind of in any meaningful way it was really your only outlet to deal with all the shit that you were dealing with in real time yes and no um thinking back on what those pages were it was clear i was stuck like i couldn't i wasn't using it as therapy so much as just like using it like i didn't i i was aware of what was going on and i was just putting that into the comics but there was no progress and there was no healing or therapeutic part. I was kind of just using it as almost as an excuse. Like, you know, if I'm living this way and I can keep making work about it, then there's something that's acceptable about this way of life. And it wasn't until I stopped making comics about it and I went to real therapy (laughs) and then I made comics about a different thing and had some separation from it. That's when I was like, Oh, this is not an acceptable way to live. So I just, stop making work about it in order to progress. It's just kind of a foregone conclusion that when you're going through something really big, that it's going to make it in some way, shape or form, it's probably going to make it onto the page, but you just don't, you don't necessarily know the nature of how that's going to happen. Or there's stuff that never makes it onto the page. (laughs) I'm talking big arcs. I'm talking big arcs in the narrative of Julia's life. Like, okay, well this is, I'm going to deal with this at some point, but it's, I mean, obviously, like everything in life is so much harder to deal with in the moment, and that hindsight is is huge when it comes to actually like writing about something in a in a cohesive and 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 coherent way. Yeah, and making comics about what I was going through while I was going through it was not helpful. It's helpful now, now that I'm in like a better place in my life. But in that point, it was like a, it was almost a detriment to my real life to make comics about my real life as it was happening. Well, sort of, I guess, like I was saying, like, I, I, I was, I had a belief that if I was making work about what I was going through, that it was like an acceptable thing. That's what I meant by like, oh, it's acceptable for me to be this way because I am an artist and I'm making work about what I'm going through. And it's important that I can go through this thing and, not do any personal work to improve it because I'm making art about it. And it's like, no, that's just stupid. Like (laughs) it's it's a dangerous loop that a lot of people get into. I mean, it's the same with medication for a lot of people of like, not only, Oh, is it, you know, necessary to suffer to make things, but also like, and like, I don't know, this is probably true to a certain extent. and, And I think you're, this is something that maybe you're grappling with right now is that like, stories of like of of kind of really meaningful struggle are oftentimes more interesting to read and it, and it's i don't know maybe it's maybe it's more difficult to write a story when you're like in a good place and and generally happy with your life yes i know what you mean but i think so like we we're saying like some elements of those pages are in the new book that i And I think that those are the good parts. Like when you are really struggling and you can write down exactly how it feels in the moment, that's like good 
work or good writing or good art. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's the work that should make it into the final, but you should like, I took the elements of that immediacy and put some of it in there, but I didn't need 200 pages of that immediate thought process and like what it felt like I could, I took those 200 pages and basically distilled them into like six pages and I think it works. Um, and yeah, a reader does not need 200 pages of the same feeling, but I had to be in a better place in my life in order to edit it down to that. And I think, so I was actually talking, I, I had submitted some of the pages as a book proposal to Eric at Fantagraphics and he got back to me and he was like, what's the story here? Are you just constantly relapsing? And I was like, I say it's funnier if you know Eric. <laughs> he was right to pass on it. Uh, I had I needed another ten years to work on the book. Thank God he did, and also thank God he said that because it didn't. I didn't hear it at the time, but later when I was working on it, I was like, "Oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta narrow this down." Like <laughs> the reader doesn't need to know like every single little blip. It's just not conducive to telling a good story. For people who don't know, Eric's been at Fantagraphics forever, and you know, and he's like. I guess he's probably maybe number two under uh, under Gary at this point, but he's he. I assume that he. Well, I know for a fact that he's dealt with some of the most difficult people, not only in cartoonists but some of the most difficult artists in the world. And it's almost a gift to be able to just be that brutally honest about something. Yeah, and then to also still have people like you. <laughs> Like I like Eric, but I could have been like, oh man, fuck that guy. But he was right. <laughs> oh, totally. And I'm sure that a lot of people have said fuck that guy and, and not not a reflection on him. I, I like Eric as well, but I'm sure that there have been a lot of people, a lot of points that have in fact said fuck that guy. I've been the person saying fuck that guy in my life a lot. And that's something that I've had to work on myself. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. That's a constant struggle to not say that about people. <laughs> And like accepting criticism for what it is, because it, it it's really hard to hear that shit sometimes. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see. So some reviews have come out about this book and they've all been good so far, but I'm like, I'm waiting for the bad one because I, I feel like they're going to be right. I'm not going to like say what I, I know is bad about the book, but the person who figures it out and is comfortable enough saying it, I'll appreciate that. <laughs> And I'll be like, oh, they they really read it. They got it. <laughs> I love that it's like, that's like your Willy Wonka prize is <laughs> to the first person who gets what sucks about this book. I'm really digging through all the reviews and I'm like, where's the one that's just going to ruin my day? <laughs> so we're, we're, we're about an hour right now, but I, I do want to ask you, um, cause, cause she, you know, she actually, she plays a, an important role toward the end, end of this book. And I don't know. I mean, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she kind of bridges the work that you were making with what you're doing now, how you're approaching things and thematically is the introduction of Roz Chast into the book. Mm, yeah. I've, I don't know her well, I've met her a few times and, and obviously I know her work, but like, I don't know if, me- if mentor is the right word, but I almost feel like having that influence of her in your life has kind of helped usher you into a place where you can make more mature work. Yeah. I mean, Physically, she got me in the New Yorker. Like, there's that part. I, that would not have happened without her. She's actually one of the reasons I do the stick figure comics, because she was like, I really like them. You should do them for the New Yorker. And Bob was like, uh, and she went to bat for me and was like, 
let let her do her thing. And now Bob's not um, there anymore, so who wins? Uh, yeah, and now uh, it's just it's Emma. God bless, because she does not have that sort of um, not standards, but she's she's a lot more welcoming for stuff that's not like old school New Yorker. Um, and God bless her for that. But Roz has like the career that I want. And like the life that I want. So to some degree, I guess it, maybe even subconsciously, I'm like, I want to f- sort of follow that path that she's done where like you still do comic book work and you still do your own work. Um, and also just kind of doing what you want despite any sort of like cultural flow. Like she's got her voice and it's carried through everything she's done. And I think that that's something that's really special. And I appreciate it. Um, and also, I want an apartment in New York City. So, maybe someday. Or a second toilet. You kind of have to choose one or the other. <laughs> you don't <Yeah>. care. <laughs> I was thinking about her before when we were talking about being cheesy and being afraid to be cheesy. And again, I don't know her well at all. I've interviewed her a couple times, but like... She strikes me as somebody who just doesn't even that doesn't even bother her. She doesn't even think about that sort of stuff. And I think that that's that's kind of a superpower in its own right. Yeah, that's what I mean by she just has her voice and she does it and she does what she wants and she doesn't. It's not to say someone doesn't care. Is, I don't think that's the right word. But she it's she's she's not bothered by that sort of um, self doubt or questioning her work. It seems, and she's just maybe also she's just so delightful to hang out with. Like it's funny, you know. Her comic persona, if you didn't know her, is more like anxious and on edge about things. But she's so chill, for lack of a better word, in real life and just fun. Um, and it's it's just interesting to, to see her be able to take anxieties and put them on paper, but then not be like that in real life at all. I mean, I had the same exact reaction that you did the first time I met and interviewed her. I was like, I want to be best friends with her. But you were able to actually live that out to a certain extent. Yeah. And I still am like that. Even when we talk like now, it's much more casual because we're friends. But I'm always like, please love me. Please love me. And then we're just like sending something. But I'm like, I hope she loves me. <laughs> I know. I'm sad to miss her. She's Just as I get to New York in a few weeks, she's going to the Bahamas or something. She leaves like the day I arrive. So I was like, no, you just see her. 